0: Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Blumgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We'll also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Well, Andrew, welcome back. I'm excited uh, to continue the conversation this week on a topic that's very important as we plan for 2023. Um, Andrew, go ahead and introduce our guest. Yeah, thanks, Sean. So uh,
1: again, I'm I'm super excited to, to dig a little bit deeper into Tar Spot um, and, and listen, uh, we're fortunate enough to have uh, Dr. Marty Chilvers from uh, uh, Michigan State University.
0: Marty, how are you doing?
2: Good, guys. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on.
0: Yeah, super excited to have you, Marty. We start our show uh, really with kind of a, a two-part question. So, first of all, I'm assuming most of our listeners know you, um, but uh, give us give us your your background and and your role at Michigan State.
2: Sure. Um, I guess I probably should explain the accent real quick. Um, yeah. <laughs> Love it by so, the way. Probably, yeah. Thanks. I'm from uh, Tasmania, Australia. So Tassie's a state of Australia, right, just like Hawaii is for you guys in the US. Um, And we're an island state. We're pretty close to mainland Australia. It's about a 45-minute flight um, south from Melbourne. Um, So I did my training down there, uh, like a Bachelor of Ag Science and then a PhD um, down there. And then I came actually to Washington State University. It was the first place I was at in the US, and I was there for about... Four years continuing some of the work I did during my PhD on onions as, as a postdoc, um, and then transitioned over to um, uh, chickpeas, garbanzo beans, mm. um, worked on disease there, um, ascocyte blight that can be really, really devastating to, to the chickpea production um, in the US and, and worldwide. Um, and I worked on other legume systems. And then I came to Michigan State in 2009. So that's, that's, and yeah, so I'm at Michigan State University. I'm the field crop pathologist here for MSU.
0: Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And and certainly uh, your reputation and a lot of your work precedes you. So excited to pick your brain. But we start our show with asking all of our guests to tell us in agriculture today, what has you the most excited? <laughs>
2: This is a tricky one. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess what, what excites me about getting up for work is I, I love the idea of contributing to food security. Like, to me, I, I love growing food and I, you know, I love being part of the agricultural landscape, if you will. Um, right now, I'm really, I guess, geeked about our research efforts that we've got going on in the lab. Um, and I think we'll probably talk about quite a bit of that with some of this task spot work. Um, but Um, I've got a number of awesome students and postdocs and techs and stuff and they do some great work so the opportunity to share with you guys some of that work that pertains to disease management.
1: Great, great. Well, uh, I I figure, you know, we got, we got a number of of different questions and and maybe topics within your research we'd like to touch on. Uh, But I I figure, Marty, let's, let's maybe uh, talk about some of your current research you're doing. What do you guys, you know, we got a few questions, we'll dig into some of your past research. And and even looking at the past research, you know, it's still within the last three to four years, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Looking at tar spots. So so what are you guys focusing on right now uh, in your lab?
2: Yeah, so the lab, um, yeah, covers field crops, right? So um, we've got various disease systems in soybean, corn, wheat, dry beans, barley um, that we're looking at. Um, So we've done a lot of work over the years um, on a couple of systems in particular, I guess. So soybean sudden death syndrome is something that I've always had like a graduate student working on in the lab. That's been, we can do a whole podcast just on that, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, So at the moment, what we're working on, just real brief, is like fungicide sensitivity. So just verifying that the C treatments we're using are still effective. And has there been any shift in in that fungicide sensitivity or resistance? Because we did a survey about eight years ago now uh, with Carl Bradley as well from the University of uh, Kentucky now. And the other element is risk prediction. So trying to use a DNA technique to essentially predict how much risk is in a field due to the amount of the SDS pathogen. Um so that's that's something on the SDS side that, that we're super geeked about. Hmm.
1: Um, I I really like that that fungicide or, or seed treatment research. You know, I, I think for years it, it seems like uh it's it's methanox and metalaxyl, right? And and, yeah. and and so you would think thinking about resistance and how that builds. and and especially thinking about all the other resistance issues we've had, you would think that would be more of an issue if if it already isn't. And I know there's certain spots where it definitely is, you know, you look at some of the pythium resistance that there is. So I I, I feel like that could, that could definitely be an episode we pick your brain on at some point.
0: I was going to say, be careful what you sign up for there. We're like three minutes in and we've already got the next one planned, but that's good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, So I'll try and keep it brief then. So some of the other areas, you mentioned pythium so we also work on like the seeds. so that's you know phytophthora and pythium species right yep so we had some um large sort of collaborative work too with multiple states involved looking at like what is the actual composition of like the pythium species and phytophthora species that are attacking soybean and then locally we've done stuff on corn and dry bean and we've got some stuff going on with wheat at the moment And it actually gets back to a project that sean conley's leading and there's a lot of connection across the landscape too i guess which uh, is something else that's that's very enjoyable. Um, so there are a couple of areas that have continued. We've we've you know done some work on head scab as well, trying to look at again fungicide sensitivity. It's something that is sort of a recurring theme, I guess, um, in the lab that we look at. Um, we're very interested in what species are causing disease as well. Um, so in those various, you know, whether it's SDS or my seeds of soybean or whatever we really really like to understand which actual pathogens are there causing damage because sometimes it's not a very simple story mm-hmm. and understanding that's really important from the you know the breeding side of things if you're trying to breed germplasm for better resistance to disease I mean geez even crop rotation and um, you know cover crops understanding exactly what diseases are there is important for understanding you know all those other System wide um, disease management, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, y- you brought up a, a really good point, and, and that's kind of why I was super excited to get you on because you know we, we had Allison Robertson on here uh, mm. a few podcasts ago, and you know looking at some of the work you do, I, I think it's it's uh, you know digging into the molecular and, and genetics of some of these diseases, and and. Uh, you know allowing listeners to understand how complicated that is when we're starting to breed for resistance or or even in this case find the 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 genetic resistance it's it's very complicated and so that's that's why I was super excited to pick your brain on some of the research you're you're doing and some of the research you've done on tar spot
2: sure yeah yeah um and i guess you know that's just that's what makes the job interesting too right there's never a shortage of questions or problems to try and solve so yeah uh, well, yeah. you,
1: you, you kind of you almost led into a question that I was maybe saving for a little bit later, but it's probably good timing, and I think it'll kind of lead Sean into some of the questions he had. So, you know, as we're breeding, starting from the beginning, you know, we have this new disease, uh, tar spot. In 2015, we confirmed it in Illinois, Indiana. Um, mm-hmm. Explain so the listeners understand, you know, in, in pathology, especially when you get into the molecular uh, world, uh, do, do a quick, brief a- explanation of the whole gene-for-gene for gene, gene for gene theory.
2: Yeah, um so gene for gene. Um that's like yeah, <laughs> it just a bit tricky to anyway. Let's just jump in. So <laughs> it's very hard, yeah, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's so I mean a good system that I can talk about easily is recently we did some work in phytophora. Yep um and so that there's a well-established gene for gene system for management of phytophora root, right? Um so He's now a postdoc in the lab. He graduated with his PhD. Um, but Austin McCoy did some work looking at which genes in the this, in this soybean are still effective for managing uh, Phytophthora. And in this particular instance, what we are talking about is a gene-for-gene interaction. So you've got a resistance gene in the soybean, and essentially can that Phytophthora isolate overcome that gene or not? And that's what he was looking at. And he did find a shift, which was really interesting, um, within the state of Michigan and it, it totally reflects what Allison has found and Ann Dorrance in Ohio and others you know, across the, the country and he's actually working on now like more of a global analysis so okay all across North America is the same shift of the same genes resistance genes now not effective for management of Phytophthora. but that's when we talk about gene for gene interaction that that's that specific example um, and then there's more complex um, interactions and that's. When it's gene for gene, it's fairly, if, if that's the case, it's fairly easy to breed for. If we find one major yeah. resistance genes to tar spot, we can put a marker on it and then breed that in and then get, you know, and typically when we're talking about gene for gene, it pretty much confers complete resistance. Um, we're not there with tar spot. We're not there with soybean sudden death syndrome. We're not really there with white mold. Um, those other diseases are really relying on a whole bunch of different genes contributing to, in the seed catalogs, what's referred to as tolerance, or, or mm-hmm. we might talk about it as partial resistance. So you have some level of resistance, but it's not complete. Um, but backing up a bit, understanding some of the molecular interactions is very, very important. Um, and I guess this segues a little bit into some of the other work we've been doing. Um, so because it's a new pathogen, this, this or new disease, this task spot, Understanding it at the molecular level, it can be very, very helpful for for breeders and pathologists to try and you know find solutions. Um, so we do have a really nice genome um, that the lab developed now. A student and a postdoc worked together on um, that. I know you know companies are also really excited about too because we want to start using that, um, looking at its genome, and we have a collaborator uh, Matt Helm at USDA who's looking at some of the effectors. So effectors are like... Um, and this you know, is where it
1: gets really interesting, right, Marty? Yeah. You, know, you get right. the whole so arms race between the pathogens. Yeah, and the yeah, home.
2: exactly. Yeah, the arms race deal, right? So you've got specific <laughs> molecules being produced by the pathogen that essentially allow it to have an effect on the corn plant, right? So there's a whole bunch of genes it's pumping out uh, particular molecules and then it has an effect on the corn plant in terms of, you know, being able to infect the plant and, you know, cause the disease. Um, So it's at very early stages, but we're super excited to be working with Matt on that, um, using our genome sequence to identify, you know, these candidate list of effectors. We know, we've got some gene expression data to know which ones are perhaps the best candidate genes to look at first. Um, On the pathogen side, you know, like, you know, does this particular effector like really contribute significantly to um, infection and disease? If it does, then can we potentially try and target that um, for management? Um, you know, through breeding for resistance or whatnot. So
1: yeah, yeah. So so thinking about you know we're 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 kind of digging pretty deep in here from the get go. Um, take us take us back to. You know this. Uh, some some of the work you did when you when you first started looking at um, you know numerous different varieties to to try and isolate and, and figure out where where we might be conferring resistance and, and then focusing on yeah
2: the yeah I think one of the first looks that we did um, so it was again it was multiple states involved here um, particularly um, Indiana Wisconsin and Illinois and us I believe. Um, at some of the initial looks anyway. And that's just because you know, that's where the disease was blowing up and we have good collaborator, co- collaborators. So what we did was use the um, the performance trials that the universities run. Um, so, you know, the universities run, you know, soybean and corn performance trials. And so they're, they're public trials. So we were able to go into those and then look at, the variety um, levels of resistance and then how they yielded. Um, and essentially what we're trying to do is just get a first look at like, okay, is there anything that's completely, you know, standing out in terms of resistance or very susceptible? And, yeah, you know, what does this interaction look like? And, and what does that level of disease look like in terms of yield loss? Um, so something's up in the Crop Protection Network around that. I believe we used the 2018 um, epidemic to, to publish on that. Um, and so, I mean, pretty clearly, the more disease you get, the greater the yield loss is. We didn't find any varieties out there that were completely immune to disease. But I think the important thing is that there are definitely differences between um, hybrids, right? Um, so that's, that's helpful helpful to know. Um, that in the exi- so in the existing um, varieties that are out there, there are differences in how susceptible or resistant the material is. And so I think, you know, really what the companies have been doing the last few years is certainly scrambling to make sure we identify anything that's very susceptible and remove that from the catalogue, right? Yep. Um, and, and the last year or two now, we actually have um, tar spot disease ratings um, in a lot of company catalogues. Um, so, I mean, that's that's all really good progress, trying to remove some of that, that material that's very susceptible to disease. And that's going to continue too as, you know, I think tar spot now – th- I think there was a report in South Dakota, just in the corner. I know Kansas is lit up, uh, Virginia, I think. So it's, it, anyway, it's continuing to spread. And so we're going to have to make sure where we have, you know, corn um, deployed that it's got resistance. You know, it's, yep. it's it's going to be the key to managing this disease, without a doubt. I think.
0: So I have a question about when we talk about the way that it's converging on the the Corn Belt in the Midwest. So we first saw tar spot in Indiana and Illinois, correct? W- yeah. Do we believe it moved from South America or, or or through the southern part of the states and we didn't identify it until then? Or it was just a gift dropped <laughs> into those areas?
2: <laughs> yeah, we, we don't know. We, I, and we may never really have great evidence to figure out how it got into the us it was a little odd the way it arrived in northern indiana illinois first i don't think it moved up from the south um i mean everything's possible but i i just i think we would have seen more of that um you know
1: i think that's a that's an awesome question because i was wondering that too of all, of all the people i've talked about tar spot with the industry professionals. I've never asked that question. It just came to me yeah. thinking, well, when Marty yeah. was going to be on here. So, I, I mean, you, you look at some of the um, cover crops, you know, there's, there's water hemp and di- different weed seeds moving around in our cover crops, right? So yeah. th- that, 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 you know, there is the possibility of some infected material going to Indiana, Illinois, but yep. it, al- it also is reasonable to think of, yeah, we didn't know what it was. It was minimal. When it was moving up from Texas north, there's numerous possibilities, but it sounds like we don't really have a good grasp on how we think it got there, huh?
2: No, we we don't. I mean, I I think the most likely scenario is somehow it got introduced into those northern parts of the states and, and, you know, continue to spread from there. I mean, it's probably surprising that it hasn't, you know, turned up earlier, to be honest, yeah cuz it was described in like 1904 yeah in Mexico yep. so that's a good we, point we, with all yeah, the
1: hurricanes and stuff you would think we would have saw it.
2: yeah hurricanes and also um you know it's one of the the you know trade around the world is really important to a lot of markets but it also does certainly result in accidental introductions of pests and diseases um, without a doubt and that's that's a very unfortunate element um of, of global trade, I guess. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, well, let, let's talk, yeah. let's talk a little bit about your research um, using uh, remote sensing. What, what's, what's your experience uh, in with that?
2: Yeah, I haven't done as much as I'd like. Um, our MSU um, corn geneticist here, Addie Thompson's been doing some work. Um, she's been running um, some pretty fancy, expensive um, <laughs> sensors, some hyperspec, um, instruments across the fields, um, you know, essentially trying to predict where a task spot is. For me, what I would like to do is there's there's multiple levels to this. Uh, first and foremost, I guess it'd be great to be able to have a better understanding of plant health um, during the season, as as we do some of these disease management trials. Um, so, yeah, we've been taking. Imagery on SDS and white mold fields as well. Um, so it's it's our imaging is not as advanced as where I'd like to get it to. I have actually a visiting scholar coming in um, this in 2023 and hopefully we'll work through more of the data sets that we've already collected. Um, but yeah, I would like to be able to use it as a way. The, um, the ground truthing for this is very labor intensive and difficult, right? Like what I mean by that is going through and scoring varieties visually So if there was a way to help supplement that with additional information around plant health or, um, you know, maybe even being able to count the number of tar spot stroma from the air, I mean, that would be a wonderful asset to, to understanding, you know, the genetics of resistance as well uh, and management implicate, you know, fungicide treatments and whatnot.
0: One of the things that gives me, you know, anxiety from a, seed seller perspective and 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 a partner to our our customers that are farmers is this idea of having such a small window of time from identifying the disease to currently reacting to it so in the commercial side of agriculture there's at least from an ag tech startup there's companies that are talking about the attempting to try and find the ability to see some sort of a early indication using imagery that, that would maybe trigger us before the naked eye could see it. D- do you believe that, that there's some of that technology close to deployable?
2: Yeah, so the big challenge, yeah, I've I've seen some of those things and um, you know, purchased imagery from like fixed wing aircraft that can get across a lot of acres, right? So different drones are awesome, they get high resolution, but it's not very many acres. So we've yeah, you know, I've used some fixed wing aircraft to just sort of play around with it. I think I think the big problem is that we can identify areas of stress, but we don't know why that is. Yeah. Right? So the challenge is to identify certain bandwidths and signals and whatnot that are, you know, corresponding to task spot and not, you know, rootworm or something like this. And so that's, that's part of the challenge. There's been a lot of work done over the years and, and I do believe that we will get there, but some of these things take time, right? It's not mm-hmm. look at the fingers and, and we know it. Um, again, the drone's, be valuable because you can get ho- really high resolution but at high cost yes so it's a great research tool but it might not be the best scouting tool uh, having said that if i owned a farm and i had three thousand 3, acres or a thousand acres of corn or whatever i would still be using a drone to have a look at things from the air and then or, or fixed wing aircraft service right or, or satellite right satellite imagery is the other really big thing right of course everyone's got those those different platforms having a look at where the stress areas are in the field or the wet areas, and then going and physically scouting them in person to see like, okay, so I know I've got a, a wet area. That's where I expect tar spot to show up first. That's where I'm going to go look. Or if I see an area of stress that I don't expect to be there, like why is that? I would I would use that to go in and ground truth. It, right? But I, I do believe it will get there. It's just going to take some time and, yeah, additional research. So if you would talk
0: Talk a little bit, and feel free to use the tar spotter app uh, as as part yeah. of this answer. But we know we know the areas that we have the inoculum, and we know that today um, we have plant or host susceptibility at varying levels depending on hybrids. So, mm-hmm. what what set of indicators? Um, when I was watching one of the uh, videos, when I was doing some research for this, you you used a term, I believe. Uh, a term a leaf moisture event as kind of a trigger could, could you walk me through for, for a grower what set of circumstances would signal to you okay I need to be on high alert so maybe I use the drone to indicate areas of stress but what environmental conditions trigger you to say you need to be on high alert
2: yeah uh, it's a good question so yeah certainly um, that task spotter app um, is a helpful tool just to sort of understanding, like, what's the relative risk um, given this, this algorithm, which is basically, you know, using weather data for a, a pinpoint, right, to go, oh, like, we, ha- we we are at high risk. And the elements that are really driving that are elements of moisture primarily. I believe temperature is part of the model there as well. But um, moisture is, abs- without a doubt, like, that is the biggest driver of tar spots. Um and I feel like yeah this winter I'm going to have to do a lot of talking about the moisture that we did get and the moisture we didn't get I guess. Mm-hmm. Um comparing this year to the last, you know, 5 years. So we've had um in this part of the, the the country anyway big epidemics in 2018 and 2021. Both of those years we had, you know, a lot of rainfall during the season. It was pretty continuous, pretty you know, it was quite wet um, this year. You know, um, it was very dry. We really didn't have many mosquitoes in Michigan. Uh, for you know, some years we get a lot of mosquitoes, but they didn't have the moisture to reproduce and then produce again, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think part of the challenge is just because we get a big downpour of rain, does not mean that yeah, tar spot's gonna like explode right now. You need to have multiple rain events or multiple, more importantly, leaf wetness events to initially get that infection. Um, it's probably starting sometime in June, you know, as we start to actually develop a canopy that can become infected. And then um, it's, you know, it's going to increase exponentially if conditions are met, right, if, if it meets, you know, those leaf wetness um, requirements, um, yeah, over time. And, and it takes about two weeks to cycle too. So it takes about two weeks from a spore to land on a plant, for it to infect the plant and start producing more spores. Um, so that's what's key to to the disease cycle and uh, how things can get really bad really quick, you know, if you do have consecutive moisture over weeks. Um, are, so are you so that's, see- what I'm, that's what I look for.
1: Are you seeing much difference? You know, there, there are certain diseases. We look at gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf blight, you have some minor differences in in rain events versus humidity versus dew. Are, are you seeing any difference with with uh, tar spot in regards to those, or is it just moisture in general? All three of those.
2: That that's a good question. In general, absolutely, it is moisture in general. Uh, but there are going to be differences um, between them, with, without a doubt, um, in terms of how much moisture they need to, to initiate infection and, and to get rolling, and also a temperature element, right? Some some diseases prefer a little bit warmer, some prefer a little bit cooler. And I guess that's one of the things we're still learning about tar spot. Um, you know, looking at some of the initial sort of data out of Mexico, it looked like maybe it was going to be a north um, issue, not really a southern issue. And I, maybe that's still true for the, for the most part. Um, but you know, I was a little bit surprised that it was a problem in Georgia last year. And I called the pathologist down there, and he said, uh, you know, I'm like, what, what is going on this year? Like, why, why is it bad, I guess? And uh, he said it was unusually cool for Georgia, you know, only getting into the 90s, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's incredibly wet, right? And so, I, again, I think the moisture element was really key there. Um, and some of these parameters go hand in hand too, right? Like if you get high temperatures, then that that may potentially drive off moisture um, and, and also can potentially also hold more moisture in the air. So it's it's about temperature cycles as well. And, and that dew formation is really important. Um, thinking back to 2021, it was very dry in the, and that was a bad task spot year. It was very, very dry at the very start of the season. Everyone got planted on time. But then in Michigan and and many other parts, we had like about 10 days of just straight moisture. And we went out and sure enough, July 1, after that 10 days of moisture, we were able to find tar spot at pretty, what I would consider pretty high levels, like every second plant with a spot or two. So it's like, you know, things are going to be bad if moisture continues for the rest of the season. Oh. Um, and then typically we get into August, we have those leaf moisture events, right? And so if it's already built, it's gonna just continue to to run away.
1: Are are you seeing much difference in temperature? Because I feel like looking back, you know, you you think of some of the, the, the last four years, there there's been some some differences in temperature. We we know we, we kind of know the consistency of, of the leaf moisture, right? But I feel like yeah. the, the temperature is a little bit trickier. I feel like from from my experience, tar spot seems less particular with temperature than some of our other pathogens.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, So one of the challenges in working with this too is that we can't culture it, right? We can take gray leaf spot and northern leaf blight and grow it in the lab and then, you know, put it on, put the spores on a plate or something and then watch them germinate at different temperatures and even different moisture. So we can get a really quick assessment of, effects of temperature yep. we can't really do that with tar spot um because it's it's you know it requires that living corn host so and it's just crazy like it's so devastating out in the field but we bring it back to the greenhouse and we, we pretty much lose it like we can't keep inoculating and reliably get heavy levels of disease so Yep. The other issue with that, too, is that we can't, you know, do greenhouse screening of germplasm or anything like that because we just can't, you know, grow it up in the lab and make a whole bunch of tar spot spores to, to put into the, back into the greenhouse or the field, you know. So
1: yeah, absolutely. Hard. Yeah. So, so, Marty, I, another thing I really wanted to pick your brain on, I, I remember back in 2018 when I was at Iowa State still, we were first identifying tar spot. I remember I was part of the group that was going across the western part of Iowa to track that oh, through, yeah. com- through counties, and yeah. I, I also
2: you lit, lit the
1: state up then, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> we we slowly we slowly did. I remember meeting up with Tamra too, and I gosh, I can't remember if that was twenty nineteen. Anyways, w- one of the things I remember is we were our, our lab we were uh, pulling samples anytime we would find what looks like those fisheye lesions, and so you know nope. we have uh, phalacromydas and we have monographella right? And so you look at the tar spot complex that they're dealing with down in South America, they've identified those two pathogens. But, but from my understanding, we have yet to identify monogryphal here in the United States. And I remember we were sending those samples in whenever we would find that, that fish eye lesion to your lab because you were doing some of that molecular work. So I'm curious where you guys are sitting on, on that right now.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, we had a look for that, and, and you know, other labs have too, so everyone tried to culture that monograph Alamatus, and we never confirmed it. So one of the problems with some of the, the um, published work out of Mexico is that, that they may certainly have some sort of species complex there causing um, that fisheye symptom, like, yeah, maybe they do, but we have not found that to be the case yet in the US. So, when we tried looking for Monographella, we couldn't find it. And the problem with the report is that there's no um, type specimen. So, that's getting real technical, but like, you know, if you catch a 50 inch trout or something, you know, you better take a photo of it and document it (laughs) so that you can prove to all your buddies that (laughs) it's real, right? And so, you know, they didn't, what they didn't do for that report is to, take a culture of that and put it somewhere that someone else could go and have a look at it. So there's, there's not, nothing, no specimen we can go back to and go, Oh yeah, look, here it is. It, it, it's, it's real. We can't, we can't put our hands on it. And there's also no um, DNA sequence of it. Um, to my knowledge, that particular um, strain when they first described it. So it's really problematic for us in terms of confirming or denying that, I guess. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so the shortest story is too. We did some um, some DNA work to have a look in lesions, and we we also could not find a good signature in the DNA in um, fish eye versus no fish eye um, spots. So we 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 don't have a good causal organism yet.
1: Yeah, do you have any theories on what that what that is? Because I, I remember back, you know, twenty eighteen to even now. You know, I, I often have a hypothesis in my mind that it's potentially HR response with some genetics that we deal with, right? And so so we're all on the same page, you know, the HR response, the hypersensitive response, and, and basically a good way to think about that is is programmed cell death, right? And so you look at some genetic resistance that all, all plant species would have with specific diseases, um, it, it's their way of killing the cells around that pathogen so that it, it limits the spread of that disease on that mm-hmm. plant tissue is, is there any theories or maybe even some truth to that? Is is that maybe what we're seeing each hypersensitive uh, response?
2: It it's perhaps possible. Um, I guess what I would say is that <clears throat> um, in terms of the genetic element, like the, the different corn um, hybrids or inbreds, we don't really see a consistent response, right? Like sometimes fisheye turns up, sometimes it doesn't it's pretty much always present to some extent in a field. I can pretty much find it anywhere, but it's not, it's just not a consistent response. Um, So it makes me wonder if maybe some other organism could be involved, or maybe it is some sort of weird hypersensitive response. I I guess, you know, um, we train our students to say, you know, if you don't know, it's okay. You can say you don't know, right? (laughs) Sometimes it's better not to I say it all the
1: time. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> and be, yeah, and be completely, you know, like just lead people down the garden path. So I I guess at this point we don't know, but it's something we are taking another look at. Uh, we have some samples from Mexico, from um, our collaborators in Mexico and, and collaborators from across the U.S. here to do another um, DNA analysis that we hope to do in the next six months or so to take another look at that. We we did it in like one Michigan field, but I want to like blow it up across states to see if we see the same pattern or not, just to take yet another look at it. The other thing people have been doing too is trying to re-isolate. So if you see fisheye, we've been trying to culture off the fungi and maybe the bacteria that are associated. And to date, we just haven't found anything that we're completely comfortable with saying that this is definitely what's causing fisheye. Um, but it's certainly something we're very interested in looking at. Yeah. Um, so,
1: so yeah. I got I got two questions. That one just popped in my head, but another one I had written down. So I've I've read some. I don't. Know, it wouldn't be published literature, but I've read some people mention coniotherium phylacera. What What do we know about that? Is Is that Is there any relationship with tar spot in general? Because I've I've heard that can potentially cause tar spot. And and then second, right. do we do we know is tar spot is is the um Phylocora infecting through the stomates
2: yeah um it i guess we don't have some good evidence of that yet i know um darcy Tolenko and her collaborator there um i'm blanking on her name now pascusi is her last name i'm sorry but um they've got some work coming up pretty soon on that um I, I, so I haven't seen the evidence yet, right? But that's, of course, that's something we all want to know as well. Like, how is it infecting? Is it only through stomates, or can it also punch through the cell wall? Yep. Uh, yeah, a lot of pathogens can punch through the cell wall. Yep. Um, that's, that's how they gain entry, right? Um, but that, that's something that I don't have a good answer for in my lab yet, and I know others are working on some publications to that. Yep. Yeah.
1: And then and ethereum, then is that something? Is yeah, there a truth to that?
2: Well, I think what is happening too is that um, especially where you, where you start to get dead leaf material, you start to accumulate a lot of other things. Um, and so when we go culturing, especially, again, sort of back to fisheye, it's no surprise that we find alternaria and other things, right? Alternaria is definitely, when we're combining corn at the end of the season, there's going to be a lot of alternaria, that's a fungus right yep. a mold it's going to be on that that corn and it's going to make the combine you know, dark because of that um, because it's just feeding on that dead leaf tissue the cotyatherium could potentially be uh what we call a mycoparasite so it's actually potentially parasitizing the phylocora so there's some potential here for biocontrol right like hmm. if, if you have a a strain of fungus that is clearly infecting the phylocora, Maybe we can grow that and spray that out as a as a means of managing tar spot. Um, Wouldn't that be cool? There are there are a few other fungi that sort of just pop up, and we're still trying to understand the relationships. I would say again yeah. because you can't culture it, so it's sort of hard, right? That we can't culture the the phylocora. We can culture some of these other things, the coniotherium as well. But yeah, some of these others can't.
1: So, so I would say my final question to you, Marty, is uh, as I prep for this. You know, I know you're doing some molecular work, and, and you've looked at uh, you know multiple different uh, varieties to try and map out maybe some different QTLs. Uh, I, I read yeah. there was, I, th- I think, last I heard, there was one major QTL and some minor ones that, yeah. that you've discovered.
2: Yeah, I believe that's correct. So. Um Addie Thompson um, has a paper that she's trying to get published here describing some of this work and um, there's a recent paper out of CIMMIT in Mexico. Um, So one of the issues, I guess, with these QTLs, is it is really helpful to start trying to identify them, but they don't necessarily contribute, you know, they contribute 10% to the resistance package. So it's a it's a contribution, yes, but it's not like you put that in and you're done, and that's all we need to do, and we can get on with our lives. It's not not that simple, right? So there's definitely continued work here um, to look for additional resistance genes and understanding the, uh, also understanding the infection process, right? And 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 yeah, that whole host-pathogen interaction. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: and I I guess maybe. I I said one final question, but I have have another one just (laughs) because I I know you're doing some research on it. You know, you you think about uh, gray leaf spot, for example, northern corn leaf blight. We we know there's instances, gray leaf spot would be a prime example of higher infection rates with higher leaf nitrogen content or just higher access to nitrogen for the plant. Do we we know, have you seen anything where you you maybe… Maybe not published yet, but you're starting to see trends, whether it's higher populations, higher Mm. nitrogen rates, leaf age, that that you're seeing tar spot favor, planting dates.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good question. There's a few elements, I guess. But, um, yeah, so we did look uh, a couple of years ago now, and again, it's another piece we're trying to get published, um, is looking at nitrogen rates and planting population and how that might affect disease. So what we did is took a couple of different hybrids and essentially applied different rates of um, urea to them to, you know, just establish different fertility or nitrogen rates. Um, And essentially, we couldn't find any response to that. However, I would certainly say that, yeah, I agree. Like we have seen in, you know, in other diseases or cropping systems, you really push nitrogen or something, then you may potentially push disease. You know, it could happen. Um, The the far more important thing we found out of that trial was that hybrid was, without a doubt, the big difference there. So just looking at two different hybrids, one was more susceptible, one was more resistant, and that was, without a doubt, the big responder there in terms of managing disease. Um, Also with planting population, uh, we found the opposite to what you might think. So typically, you know thinking about maybe white mold in soybeans, high plant populations, you create that microclimate, you create disease conditions. We found the opposite with tar spot. So at lower plant populations, we actually found more disease developing on the leaves. Hmm. Hmm. We don't understand that completely yet. And we're trying to like do some additional work to follow up. Um, Our meteorologist was chatting with him about it. And he's like, well, you know, if you have uh, a less dense canopy, you have greater potential for radiative heat loss at night. And because you're losing heat quicker, you could potentially form dew on those oh. lower plant populations, right? Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. That it actually is. Water. That's interesting, yeah. It's pretty cool, right? So we, we have sensors out there. We're working with this guy, Suk Dong. He's an engineer here, irrigation expert. Uh, so we're trying to, like, you know, see if that might be the reason why. There could be other just um, aerodynamics you know, rain splash dynamics, you know, maybe we just got more air circulating so you've got more splash and more dispersal of the pathogen too. Yeah. We don't know yet, but that's something we're we're looking at. Um, you also, yeah, you also asked about planting population, uh, planting date rather, right? Um, And I, I should finish that message, I guess. So, you know, this is a great... Potentially a great news story for seed salespeople, right? Sell <laughs> so you more seed because, yeah, no. That, that's you want to prevent
1: case. tar spot plant
0: higher yeah, population. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly, let, let me yeah. so You're the first, first guest we've ever had
0: that's encouraged out. a higher population. So finally, we found one guy, yeah.
2: <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, so don't cut this bit out. But what we, what again, what the message would be is that the variety made the bigger difference. Yes, you know, lower plant population, we did see more disease. Um, and we need to look at that more in terms of you know how does that affect yield and whatnot. But essentially, what our recommendation would be is is do what is agronomically recommended for best corn production. Continue doing that. Don't don't change fertility practices. Don't change population yet. We don't have good evidence. But again, the important thing is that variety selection. Make sure you talk to your seed dealer about finding a variety that's going to have good good resistance package.
0: For well, you. Uh, and I th- I think that's that's kind of maybe where I. Where I'd like to kind of take the end of our show here. So we've certainly talked about the depth of research, the complexity of the disease, the things we know, and the things we're trying to learn. But if if you were to sit with a a corn grower in the Midwest, I guess maybe maybe talk through. Um, you've you've hit on hybrid selection and the importance that that to date that's that's one of our best tools. Um, talk maybe a little bit about the research you've done around efficacy of fungicide, where um, where our listeners could find some of that data, and then maybe any other best practices or just thoughts about the application of information for 2023.
2: Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we've talked a lot about the importance. So whenever I'm talking about any disease management, honestly, it's always about thinking about high, you know variety resistance is number one. Like if you've got a disease problem, that's where you should really start with whatever the disease is. You know, thinking about task spot risk management, you know the weather is going to be an absolute driver there. Right. The 20, you tell me exactly what the 2023 weather season is going to do, and I can probably give you a pretty good estimate of what Tar Spot will do, right? So that that's the challenge.
1: Yep. Then Marty retires.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we, we have a few irrigators here in Michigan and, and northern Indiana, um, and certainly it'll be interesting to see what happens in Nebraska and Kansas as Tar Spot moves into those, those heavily irrigated states. Definitely, you know, irrigation again. That leaf moisture can drive disease. We've got these phenomenal photos just showing night and day where you know you have heavy irrigation and and disease is just blowing up. It I, saw, I saw one breath. of
1: those photos you're, you're referencing. And I was amazed because tar spot yeah. was much worse. Incidence and severity was much worse where it was irrigated, but yield was also much higher.
2: Right. So I have the counter to that. Right. So in 2018, I have basically the same imagery and it shows you in 2018, because it was such a bad tar spot epidemic, a little bit additional irrigation drove the yields 50 bushels lower under irrigation versus the dry corners. We almost didn't need to irrigate that year because we had so much rainfall, Mm -hmm. right? 2019, like you just said, was the opposite. You could see that disease was really heavy under irrigation yet again, but it was a sandy location. So if you don't irrigate, you're not going to produce corn, right? So it's so don't give up on irrigation, but be very mindful of that and try and minimise leaf wetness.
0: I paused the video when we were when um, Andrew sent me a link to that that uh, I think it was Michigan State breakfast or something that that you had done, and I paused the video because I was so excited when I saw the irrigation line and how much the moisture had contributed to the disease. I didn't get to the part of the slide where you were talking about the yield difference. I was like, you guys, you got to come look at this, and then. <laughs> Kinda of eat my words, that it was actually better. But I do think it's interesting to see just how sharp of a line that was, and how how big of a contribution the leaf wetness factor was. Um, yeah. So hybrid selection. Sorry, we kind of we kind of it's all right. derailed you there. But so hybrid selection, and then what other what other considerations? Obviously, weather um, weather, weather patterns are going to play a huge factor.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think on the planting date element, I would just plant for optimal. Um, you know. Production of corn. I, I wouldn't give up on you know bushels, uh, but then certainly scout for um, tar spot. Um, be aware of what's happening in counties near you. Um, we've we've been mapping tar spot. When we find it, we've been mapping it just to sort of keep tabs on it. Doesn't mean you should spray just because we turn a county yellow, but just that like, hey, we've found it. Um, and then that tar spotter app. Um, that Damon's been working on you know is a really good tool just to sort of assess the risk given the last couple of weeks of weather where are we at in terms of risk and how do we fit in terms of growth stage too typically I think you know if we are going to make a fungicide application at minimum we're going to wait until late vegetative stages or at you know we're not going to go earlier than that I think what we've demonstrated is like a you know, a V eight fungicide application does really nothing for tar spot. It's really just too early, right? We just don't typically have enough disease there to manage. Yeah. Um, most of the time that VT through to R three, perhaps timing is seems to be optimal. Um, we did have a situation a few years ago in twenty nineteen where the whole field, and this is from a um uh, an industry um, collaborator and in, and a. Yeah, he's really good to, to chat with. Anyway, the whole field was sprayed at R1, but there was no taskbot at that point in time, you know, mid-July. They came back mid-August and they found taskbot was really sort of popping up in the field. And so they put an application out um, about August 20th or 18th, something like that. It's pretty, you know, mid to late August. And he actually saw a 20 bushel benefit from that second application compared to a single application. I think this is a bit of a rare instance, right? And it's, and I think what happened there is that Tarspot was late to develop. It did develop. And then that, the following, you know, the September that came after that application was very wet. And so disease continued and it built and built and built. So, again, part of the challenge with trying to figure out if we're going to get a fungicide response is, a, are we going to see disease or not? And that's all dependent on the weather that's coming, It's dependent on what's here now. Absolutely. And that's why you should scout and be aware of how much pressure do we, are we seeing in the area? Do I have it in my fields? But then that return on investment, yeah, is certainly going to be greatly affected by the disease development through the end of the season.
0: Yeah. So we, we have a lot of listeners that are kind of preloaded with the expectation of a VT application of fungicide um, as a, as a crop, you know, as a crop production tool yeah. So, so that, so that certainly exists. How, how close are we, if close at all, to a sh- to a chart that would give us, you know, maybe level of contamination or, or level of d- disease infection at vegetative or R stage, and yeah. and a, a recommendation to spray? Is that does that exist, or are we a ways it's, off of that?
2: It's, it's not. We don't have it developed yet, but that's certainly something we're really interested in trying to develop. Um, again there's there's always variables right so what's the hybrid you have you're always going to see a different response by how protective or susceptible that that hybrid is and again the you know the yeah the amount of task spot and then what happens with the weather as it is it going to drive or not but that's certainly where we want to get to for you know making the best prediction so that we're right most of the time in terms of those fungicide applications um, and, tr- and trying to optimize them as best as possible and and I, I guess again, you know the crop protection network and all the great collaborators we have and, and people that you know focus on different areas um, there's so much value there because we can generate all these these data sets across states and locations very quickly. so
0: yeah
2: it's pretty quick to develop a data set to validate task spotter and then answer some of these risk prediction type, type yeah. questions.
0: We will certainly uh, tag. Crop Protection Network and, and probably link them in the show details. When we wrap our show, Marty, we, uh, our show is called A Penny for Your Thoughts, uh, yeah. our agronomist Andrew Penny. Um, we call kind of our closing segment, uh, Cashing in My Penny, so I ask Andrew to give me three succinct takeaways from the show, and I'd invite you to chime in if 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 you think there's a an application either for the science community or or for our listeners that are growing corn. Um, but Andrew, I'd like to cash in my penny.
1: Yeah. So uh, I, I kind of chose, you know, since we had Allison on here, you know, we we kind of talked about some of those uh, production practices of you know things we can manage and things that we can do. So I thought I'd take this a, a little bit different route and maybe maybe what, what I'm talking about here is what I pulled from our conversation with with Marty and so I, I'll definitely give a plug out to my man Damon Smith up at Wisconsin um, if, if you don't have the tar spotter app that that was kind of one of my takeaways you know you, you mentioned to Marty be on high alert if, if there's leaf wetness right if we're getting rain if we got lots of humidity you consistently find a lot of a lot of moisture on your leaves be on be on alert you, use that tar spotter app anything you can to monitor the progression of, of that. You know, if, if if the environment's conducive, be, be on the lookout. Um, my, my second takeaway that I, I kind of wrote down here just listening to you, it sounds like, yeah, with with the work you've done, you've, you've definitely identified some QTLs, maybe a, a major one and some minor ones, but that's still only contributing a small percentage to what we're seeing with resistance. So I think there's still a lot of work, and, and I'd love to keep in touch with you, Marty, on that to, to see what you guys, as you continue your research and looking at some of the molecular uh work that you're doing and, and, and looking at tar spot i'd love to keep in touch with you on that and then and then the third one kind of my takeaway you know you've kind of been uh one of the forefront and leaders looking at the the tar spot complex and and I, I think we get a lot of questions about that you know when when people see those fisheye lesions and it sounds like we have yet to confirm um monografella it, it looks like it's phylacrae Uh, made this is what we're dealing with and so i think as we continue um it it sounds like you're going to continue to work to to try and figure out what that is what that relationship is 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 there another pathogen potentially and so i think that's something that that i took away from this and something that i'd like to keep in touch with you about so that we can learn together
2: yeah no
0: I, i think that's really good yeah excellent well marty anything else uh that you would like to add for our listeners
2: No, um, just uh, thanks also to Darcy Talenko for helping to organize some of these. We all participate in different levels. I just don't think I mentioned her name. We mentioned Damon as well. But um, Darcy's been very helpful in in managing and getting some of those um, things published on the fungicide efficacy, Yeah. the multi site pieces of work. Definitely. And
1: and we'll definitely link your video, your breakfast video on Tarspot for listeners. And then we'll also link the Crop Protection Network fungicide efficacy chart. I think that'll be beneficial for people to look at so
0: yeah absolutely um marty thank you so much for your time today andrew in uh following with our shows normal theme give us a little bit of a teaser about next week
1: yeah so we're, we're going to build on the grower edition of a penny for your thoughts and we're going to have the agronomist edition so so i think uh I, I think we you know talking with you sean we wanted to do this because i think you know being uh growers uh, agronomist we only get 30 to 40 chances to get this right correct so you know, I think the more we learn from every year, the, the, the more we learn from that current year and implement into the following year, the better off we'll be. So I, I, I think we, you know, we talked about having agronomists on here to kind of summarize 2022 and what we've learned. So I look excited, you know, I'm excited to pick, uh, pick their brains across the Corn Belt and see what they've
0: learned uh, from the, the, the challenging year of 2022. I'm really excited. Andrew, thank you. Marty, thank you. Uh, look forward to it. And we'll see you guys next week. Thank you,
2: Marty. Thanks, guys.
0: for joining us for another episode of a penny for your thoughts as always we love feedback from our listeners please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to andrew and i on our social media we'll chat at you next week